You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. I heard echoes of other voices. I was I I, I was thinking a lot of Ursula Le Guin with your story. I was really? Still, well, thank yeah. you. That's a compliment. Yeah, I'll, I'll second that. Yeah. And also of a particular story. The uh, what's the one called? They who walk away from Omelas or Amelas yeah. or whatever. You know, which is a, a an ethical parable. Mm-hmm. I would say, sort of in the same spirit. And yours made me think a lot of Neil Barrett Jr. <laughs> I don't know if you know his stuff, yes, but he's a favorite of mine. That's a very flattering comparison. I, 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 yeah, I meant it to be flattering. That was a that was a great story. I think he's a he's a great treasure. I, I love his stuff. And uh, uh, so th- the question I want to ask both you guys is: How do you start a story? Do you start with character, with a setting? I, I thought we'd talk a little bit about technique since we had two. So technically different stories tonight uh, that they dealt somewhat with the same, I wouldn't say exactly the same materials and certainly not the same mood, but they, uh, but two very different um, and very accomplished, but very different, um, I wouldn't even say styles. I would, I think both of yours stylistically are much broader than those particular stories but how do you how do you where does a story start does it start with character does it start with the idea does it start with the with the setting or just a mood or or where do they where does it begin where do we get our ideas (laughs) i I get the the idea that's not the question (laughs) what did harlan ellison say a warehouse and and you know, yeah. yeah, well, I always, people ask me, I always say, I get it from my butt. So I sit down for like five <laughs> that, hours a day. That's a very sore subject for me right now. Yeah, today. right. <laughs> but if, if you sit down in front of a word processor, uh, you'll get them. And, but where, uh, starting with you, Susan, where, where do you, in this story in particular, but in general, what's your point of entry? I'm character driven. So my, my, work almost always starts with character um, and in this one I mean I you know I told the story a little bit before before I started reading I was I was haunted by the fact that you know somebody I know who's a spectacularly good person by most conventional measures had you know in his childhood evidently been you know performing behaviors that would get him labeled you know a serial killer by psychologists now and you know ha- and i the, the the psychology of that and i'm also i'm really interested in characters who are marginal are arc outcast are looked down on somehow and in trying to figure out what makes them tick and how they perceive the world and um and in exploring their humanity, right? And you know, the hardest humanity to explore maybe is the humanity of the person who built, who burns kittens alive. I mean, I mean, I, I probably trying to explore the humanity of a child molester would be more difficult. But this is, you know, this is on that list somewhere. Um, so I was, 
you know, and, and a lot of this wasn't conscious when I was doing it. I'd been wrestling with the A to B problem, and then the, you know, as I said, I was on drugs, and they sort of unlocked the, you know. I, I mean, I really did write that story in one sitting when I was gorked out on, on muscle relaxants, so. Um, and it, it often feels as if, and a lot of writers will tell you that the stories feel like they're coming from somewhere else and being channeled when it's working right, which is doesn't always. This is why I'm not more prolific. I, I call that calling down fire from the gods. Yeah. Uh, you can write a good story without doing that, but when you're doing that, woohoo. <laughs> yeah, what? that's how I wrote The Necessary Beggar, Calling too. down fire. Yeah. Yeah. What does that mean? What she just said, that, that the, the story... I mean, I suppose in psychological terms, it's entering a fugue state or something, but the story becomes, sort of transcends your process and simply comes pouring out of you. Right. And I mean, obviously, we are the authors. I don't believe that some externality is literally doing that, but that's the subjective experience. Well, and my, my metaphor, it, it, I'm, I'm Christian, and my metaphor is it's my version of speaking in tongues, right? I mean, it's a Pentecostal experience. Hmm. Read it. Not nearly long enough between books. <laughs> <laughs> you know, my, my editor at Taurus is the very same thing. <laughs> Well, I mean, I'll tackle that. Okay. It, it, I first of all, I want to say something that will cause every writer in this room to hit me, and I'm sitting next to two of them. It isn't hard very often. We uh, hate you. We hate you. <laughs> uh, that doesn't mean it's always good. And there are a few stories that have been very hard. And in particular, I have one novel I've been stuck on for about six years. And those of you who actually know anything about my, my writing process know how strange that is. But um, when it's hard for me is usually one of two things. So it's something I'm very emotional about. It's too close to me. And that can often produce some difficult but worthwhile work. But it, it, I, I literally I sold one story to Clarksville last year that I couldn't even proofread. I mean, I had to have somebody else proofread it for me when they, when they put it up. It's like, okay, I'm, not, I'm never going to read that story again in my life. What I'm was that not. story? Um, Chewing Up the Innocent. And it ran in Clarksville last year. And it was actually me writing about leaving my wife and our young daughter. And it was very thinly veiled autobiography, which you're not supposed to do. And it wasn't even remotely genre. The character in the story was, was a fantasy artist instead of a writer. But it was pretty close to autobiography. And it got picked up by a genre market and got very good reviews. And I can't touch it. I can't look at it. Um, that's a certain kind of difficulty. Now, writing what I do, I don't come that close to autobiography very often. That, that isn't what, you know, even though, you know, we are all in our stories. The, the, the filter is very strong in our field because of all of, all of the vernacular and tropes that get, inter, get interposed between the real experiences behind, you know. I never met the devil of a school bus in the woods, you know, <laughs> <laughs> right? Um, the other thing that makes it hard is occasionally I just have a really complex thing that I'm trying to do, and I really have to beat at it, hammer and tongs. And that's almost hard in a craft way, not in like a writer's block emotional way. Um, and that's usually when I'm trying to grow in a certain direction that might, might don't naturally want to grow in. Um, and it's hard for me most of the time. This is why I have a day job. <laughs> um, I mean, I will, I will never be someone who supports herself with her writing. I just, I, when, 
when I have an idea and I'm working on something, it comes pretty easily. I mean, I'm now back, as I was telling Rick before, I'm now back at work finally on my fourth novel. And I'm showing, you know, when I'm in the middle of the project, I can show up at the computer every day and a few pages will come out and everything's cool. But that happens like every 15 years, right? So, you know, um, it and it's, for me, the hard thing is that between times, I don't feel like a writer. You know, I feel like a fake. I feel like an imposter. I, you know, um, and it's, and this is especially true because I'm an academic and I'm around people who are, you know, producing all this work all the time. And, and that can put you in a pretty weird headspace too. Um, I mean, there's a lot of imposter syndrome in, in the academy and, you know, you combine that with what goes on with writers anyway. And it what gets do you mean, imposter toxic. syndrome? Imposter syndrome, if they really knew me, they'd know I'm a fake. <laughs> they'd know I'm not really smart. They'd know I'm not really a writer. They'd know I'm, you know, whatever. It's, it's, oh. you know, it's a particular presentation of inadequacy when you're around people who are smart and creative and they're, you know, there comes to be a certain kind of competition. And Other imposters, you mean? Right, yeah, exactly, because yeah. everybody everybody goes through it, you know. Um, we all it, feel like outsiders, no we, matter how we're exactly, we are in the exactly. Yeah. Um, now that's a lot of the stuff that I put in my fiction too. My fiction is very psychological, so um, it, it, the difficulties come up often when the story that wants to be told is not one. I want to write. I have I have had a freaky pattern in my writing and I you know don't want to make too much of this and maybe it's just because I write science fiction of like I write things and then they sort of come true in a certain kind of way. Um, and I I don't and so there are some things I'm like terrified to write. <laughs> I'm like, no, we don't want to go there. And that's, you know, I mean, that's like superstition and crazy and, and, and whatever. But writers are often very superstitious people. It is not a rational process. I mean, the, you know, the calling down fire thing is not rational. And, and I'm not, you know, I'm not really joking when I say that it's my version of speaking in tongues. I mean, it feels like, you know, I'm collaborating with something in me or out of, outside of me or whatever that is that is another force that is, you know, that isn't the imposter, you know, the, the Susan who isn't the imposter or the part of her who isn't the imposter pops up for five seconds every 15 years and a story comes out. So, <laughs> that's, um, I, and that's incoherent. I apologize. I drove in from Reno today through entirely too much smoke and <laughs> I'm not oh. sure if my brain's still working. <laughs> Do you have another question? Well, on that same line, talk, when you say you're work, trying to do something technically more difficult than you've done, uh, what, what kind of stuff are you talking about? Well, it, it's, that's varied at different points in my career. Um, for example, when I decided to stop writing fiction about middle-aged white guys um, and like write about you know like women or children or people of color or something else, um, there was points where that was a real struggle for me. Recently, I wrote a novella last fall, which I, I will be out this coming fall in a collection called Olympical from Paper Gollum. Then I wrote another novella in January, kind of by accident, that um, I sold to PS Publishing, which will come out as a, a freestanding piece in 2010. And in both cases, I was doing some really kind of cockeyed stuff with point of view. 
Um, in What's Cockat stuff with point of view? In America Such As She Is, which is the piece that's coming out this fall, has two narrative lines. One narrative line is told in the second person present tense. The other narrative line is split among four or five characters, most of whom are profoundly unsympathetic, like a Japanese lieutenant who'd been at the rape of Nanking. Um, virtually nobody in the story has a name. So you have this story that, that uninvites the reader in a bunch of conventional ways that would get you bounced out of any workshop. Yet, I quite frankly think it's one of the best stories I've ever written. And it's, what it is is it's sort of, sort of stunt writing, but it was me really, really trying to work with point of view way beyond the norm. And I, I think I pulled it off. Well, now, second person present tense. So that's like, you're looking at me, yeah. and I want yeah. you to... You quit. walk into the room. You pick up the gun. You yeah. shoot the hooker, right? right. You know? yeah. Okay. And, and, and the second and person character that's the you-identified character is a GI who was an industrial slave in Germany during the war mm. and was very badly abused. But he's not the... He, a second person present tense, then the second person is... Is the character the narrator's speaking to, right? Yes, except the action is being described as if it was in third person. So it doesn't work, except it does. That's what I mean when I say it was difficult. Well, give me, how, I'm, I'm getting confused. Give me a, give me a, a couple of, just give me a little, how, how does that work? Okay, I, I don't have the text with me, obviously. but um, the What do you mean you don't have the text with you? What the hell? <laughs> Well, ever since the operation, my eidetic memory has just vanished. And, right. uh, you know, it starts out with uh, you drive into a gas station on the Oregon coast. You take out your last three dollars. You're, you're pump, you pump gas in the car. You go, you go inside the store. There's a young boy writing in a notebook. It starts with that kind of narrative. Oh, okay. And so it's putting it, it's putting what I'm trying to do. Well, no, let me take this back. Choose your own adventure. I never know what I'm actually doing until long after I'm done. But what I, I think I was trying to do was put it in your head in a different way. As the right, but it, I'm just, I'm just. I'm trying to think of this as a technical, like a lot of times we talk generally, I'm just trying to talk technically. So what you're calling second person mm -hmm. is actually third person because yes. you're, you're the reader, it, it, it's like, uh, uh, you know, we all know uh, that uh, we hate to eat candy uh, on yes. Sundays. Uh, the underlying narrative structure is absolutely third person. Right. The, grammat the nominal grammatical presentation is second person. Okay. All right, Terry, so. my story, Gastella, is second person. Second person. All right, second person, present tense. You remember this. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. But that this is written to a person. It's written to the reader. Right. And I wasn't writing to the reader. I was just yeah. using the second person. No, side. No, no, no. But the no, effect no, no. is to that it's, the no, effect no, no. is that. You remember this very clearly. You were roughly halfway through the four to two transition and Jonathan was sitting next to you. This is not addressed to the reader. This is the characters being created by but, but being spoken the, to. But the reader is being put into the position, position of being made into the character. Yes, which is what I was trying right, to do. Right, right, right. Well, so when I say you, this is happening to you now. It's as if you're under a spell and you're undergoing the same transformations that the character is. It's, it's the imperative voice, right? It's the same voice right. as instruction manuals. You will now take slot A and insert in tab B. And I think that's why a lot of readers resist and, and in this particular story of mine, that's interspersed with textbook excerpts, shooting scripts, a completely external, extra textual material that highlight the world building of the story. So it goes back and forth between you and these very unsympathetic people on an island in the South Pacific and this, this external narrative stuff. 
There's a story that uh, Ted Chang did. Um, story of your life. Story of your life. Yeah. Right. Which which was second person because it was addressed right. to a person and exactly. so it created a character, yes. which is it's technically second. See, this is that, the stuff that interests that story, me. Everybody's eyes are glazing over. That so. story was more epistolary. This is what writers talk about in bars. This, that story was more epistolary because it's yes. as if it was, she, it was The mother was writing to the and, daughter. Yes. And this right. is different. I mean, yeah, our kind is, of second person is different. Yes. It's, yeah, that, yeah it's, it's using the second person, but it's really creating the same narrative. Uh, well, and, and the underlying point here is that we go to school and our English teachers tell us that, you know, you can write in third per first person, second person, third person. But there's a lot more than that. I and, guess and, that's and, what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. and it's true because there's a lot of uh, nuances in that, especially have, have if you, you start playing with it. Have you yeah. ever written a story from the point of view of the pronoun one, as in one does this? I, I did that once in my life and sold it. I wrote a story for where one was the pronoun. I don't even know what person that is. That's a lot like you, actually, yeah. in terms of the impersonality. Yeah, I, because it's it, one in in ordinary spoken English is is a is a a formalism. Well, another thing that it well in certain cases, I mean, I've used it in my blog. I volunteer at a hospital and I write about experiences there, but I have to keep it anonymous because of HIPAA and, and everything. And so sometimes. I I'll, will write an entry as if I'm writing to the patient and talk about you because it allows me to obscure gender, among other things. Right. Um, right. Yeah. But, these, but I, I think Jay hit on something. These, these like three uh, syntactical things actually cover up a whole range of, and of course that's what writers do. I mean, to me, you know, as a writer, you're always trying to figure out who's, who's telling this story and why mm -hmm. are they telling it, you know? and and that can come out in a lot of different kind of ways. I mean, the one is is a formalism. It's mm -hmm. like uh, it's a truth universally acknowledged that a young man in, with a fortune is in yeah, one yeah, of a yeah, wife. Yeah. You yeah. know, it's yeah. like uh, uh, it it gives you a formal tone that then you can undercut in a yep. million different yep. ways. All right, yeah. all right. What about length? I mean, you talk about to me difficulty comes with length, uh, not 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 in terms of well, just the hammering at it but uh you know like a, a a short story uh kind of is all in ram it seems like a novel uh you, you get presented with a short story in a sense once you figure out the voice you you've kind of got it with a novel it seems like you you keep bumping up against uh I timeline problems narrative i do anyway you i mean my my experience with writing novels, which I haven't written very many of, <laughs> keep take this with a grain of salt. I'm a very formalistic writer, and so I mean, some people do outlines in terms of plot, right? I do outlines in terms of structure, and part of that is voice. What's, what's, what's the difference between plot and structure? Well, for instance, when I was writing The Necessary Beggar, I knew how long each chapter was going to be and who was going to be narrating each chapter and what voice it was you going know to be in. how long it was going to be? Well, it, yeah. 
But I didn't know exactly what was going to happen, but I had to have the structure of saying, okay, this chapter is gonna be 15 pages, and then I'm gonna make this other chapter be 30 pages, and, and, I, and, I, and I do I'm that. I'm amazed, I mean, I, I've never get heard. Get thee behind of me, Stan. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I also burned goat heads. <laughs> Hey, that I keeps think. the devil away. Well, it's it's a lot like, I mean, my favorite poetic form is the sonnet. And it's a lot, there's something about that structure. Yeah. Bruce Holland Rogers does that with his Symmetrina things, if you've ever read about that. I haven't read them, but I, yeah. I mean, structure can be, um, the confinement of it can actually be very freeing because you know where your boundaries are. So you feel freer to play within them. At least I do. What about you? Jay. I'm just so boggled by your answer. I lost track of the question. Uh, I know. I, that's, I'm, I, I'm, I, I'm, I'm amazed. I'm I wrote impressed. that book in I, one I, and a half I, weeks. I will answer your question in two ways. Okay. Yeah. Now, where I am in my career today, the hardest things for me to write are very short things. One of the very hardest stories I ever wrote was a 376-word flash called The Houses of the Favored. And it's about the angel of death passing over Pharaoh's Egypt. Because as a kid, I could never understand in Sunday school why we're supposed to celebrate the death of tens of thousands of innocents. Yeah, no because kidding. the sons, did, the children did nothing. Right. Exactly. Why did that punish Pharaoh? Right? Exactly. I mean, even when I was six, I could see the flaw in that logic. Exactly. Yet, <laughs> my Jewish friends celebrate every year quite, quite expressively Passover, and my Christian friends hand out gold stars in Sunday school for celebrating the deaths of thousands of children. And getting the sorrow of being God's servant sent to do murder mm -hmm. into 376 words, because I, that was actually a symmetry exercise of Bruce mm -hmm. Holland Rogers, come to think of it, mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. was extremely difficult. Mm -hmm. Now, to what you said about keeping it in your head, when I first started writing to the point where I could sell professionally, which was 10 or 15 years after I started trying, because I'm a slow learner, I could keep maybe a 2,000-word story in my head, right? So, you know, eight, 10 pages. I could kind of work without having to stop and make notes and figure it out. I call that span of control. Over the years, I can now keep about 200,000 words in my head. I can write an entire novel from start to finish without stopping by just having it in my head as it unfolds. I don't have it in my head when I start. But as long as I don't stop and interrupt myself for more than a day or two, I go back to the desk every day at the worst every other day. That stays in my head. It took me years to learn that trick. And I can't work on anything. I can't stop and do something else or I screw it up. Hmm. My span of control is about three words. This <laughs> 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 is another reason I'm not prolific. <laughs> interesting, interesting. Well, what That's about fascinating? How, so, how did you teach yourself that? Practice, practice, practice. <laughs> <laughs> I actually, I did some self-teaching exercises, but it mostly had to do with once I understood what was going on. What do you mean, self-teaching exercises? Well, I, I, this is something I do all the time. Uh, not so much anymore because the stuff I'm working on now, I, I mostly work on in in real. I, I work on the stuff I'm going to sell or have sold, but. Um, when I realized that I had span of control issues, I deliberately started writing stories slightly outside my nine length that I could handle. Oh. And, you know, it's like doing weights. Okay, I'm gonna add five pounds, right? Yeah. And I'm not gonna add 100 pounds, because I'll never move the, move the bar. But right. I'm gonna add five pounds and strain to get it up, right? right? And then I'm gonna add another five pounds next week. And so the other self-structured exercise I do was um, somewhere fairly early on, I figured out that if I was having problems with something specific, like dialogue, dialogue tags, mm -hmm. using uh, blocking to indicate dialogue, mm -hmm. so it's not Jane said, Joe said, Jane said, Joe said, Jane said. Mm -hmm. I would start writing Flash, because in Flash, you can have a character in a setting with a problem. The cop stumbled over the body in the apartment door, right? You have a character in a setting with a problem, but you only have 500 words. You only get to do one thing. 
Yeah. You can do description. You can do action. You can do internal character development. Mm-hmm. You can do dialogue. He starts arguing with the, the with the uniform outside. Mm-hmm. What, whatever you do, one thing in your 500 words. Well, if I'm at a period of time where I'm kind of having a hard time with some aspect of craft, mm-hmm. I stop and write Flash, where I'm kind of hammering that aspect of craft for myself and mm-hmm. saying, okay. Can I make this dialogue work? Can I write 500 words of completely unattributed dialogue and have it make sense? Right. Can I write 500 words of dialogue with blocking and have the blocking carry the, the, the dialogue? Yeah. Can I write 500 words of female inner monologue and have it feel genuinely female? Yeah. yeah. I give my writing students exercises yeah. like that. It's, um, you do. Well, one to two page exercises where they're practicing very specific things like write dialogue without speech tags yeah. so thus such that we know who's talking at each moment. Because if two English professors are talking to each other, it's really hard to do that. But if the English professor is talking to the, the uh, recent immigrant who's fixing his car, right. that's not hard to do. Right, right. Well, what, a, what about uh, character? I mean, say, in, well, look at the way you did the char- in the in the Neil Barrett junior story you read the um uh, <laughs> shit fire <laughs> now the character how was that that character is is developed uh how i have no idea really i'm not kidding you i'm not you know you said you're a character driven writer yeah i'm not i am a style driven writer i start with an image mm. uh, uh the goat cutter actually started because i was listening to bob dylan highway 61 revisited God okay. said, Abraham, kill me a son. Right? Yeah. God said, Abraham, kill me a son. And that's another one of those Bible stories I always really wondered about a lot. Right? <laughs> and uh, so I had this, I, I started, th- that's why there's a County Road 61 in that story. Right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's, I started wondering what that meant. And that, not so much a direct prose image, but sort of a conceptual image unpacked into that story. And the character arose from the language of the story as much as anything else. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm not giving you a very good answer, but it's the one I got. No, it's, it's it makes terrible sense answer. to me. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> it makes sense. I've to gotten me. a little better at it since the then. character. I mean, because the 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 character is the language of the story, because the whole story is told in the character's voice. Yes. And so it's all retrospective, so, you know. Yeah, yeah. So so that's all I'm saying. It's it, it's not a character. Sometimes you create a character by having other people look at somebody who you know, yeah. or sometimes you create a character. By the way, by what they leave out, you yep. know, so you know all that kind of yep. stuff. Yep. Uh, mm-hmm. So that's what I'm asking: is how do you create a character? I mean, uh, well, like you have you had two characters in this story, mm-hmm. and now that that story to me is the opposite of realism, where they have the the names themselves are saying these these are uh, this is a, a this is an allegory, and yet I'm going to put real people in mm-hmm. here. So how did you? do that I was on drugs <laughs> I you know we are failing this exam uh, I can't let, let I, me interrupt speaking of the muscle relaxants the, all the profits from the bar go to the variety I don't um, there are other characters in other works I have developed consciously I mean this one this one this story it's hard it's hard to answer. I mean, I you know, I had these two characters. I had the image of the girl in the ditch, and the, the image of the heart outside the body actually came from somewhere else. And it turns out that's an actual medical condition. I mean, no, there are children born with their hearts outside their body, and there's a kid in Philadelphia who's like 18 and has this and plays basketball, and he wears like a hard plastic shell. And uh, I, 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 I learned that after I had written 
the story. But I just, you know, I had her there and I had him come across her and I sort of stood back and watched to see what would happen. Yeah, all right. Can I, can well, I give you a simplistic answer to that question that might be slightly more useful? Sure. The telling detail, right? Yeah. Characters are based on, the, and the way the reader receives the characters is often based on the telling detail. And, you know, Zoli was the kind of guy who hung around in psychiatrist's waiting room to pick up chicks. Right. Tells right. you everything you need to know about that guy, right? It, it, right. <laughs> and, and in the story that I just read, the telling detail is actually the kid's dialect. Uh huh. The way he talks is how you know who right. he is. Yeah. Uh -huh. that, yeah. That's all I'm saying. The, the, okay. So the narrative voice is, uh, is what is. Yes, is, is, is the, how the character is. And the character are the same thing. Because he's an intelligent okay. kid. You can yeah. tell that. It comes yeah. through. Yeah. He's yeah. not educated, but he's intelligent. Right. Right. He solves the problem. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So that answers that all those questions. <laughs> all which questions? I don't think we're making Mr. Bisson very happy. <laughs> no, 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 no. I'm, I'm quite hey. happy. I, I was just. I, th that's what. Huh? Making him happy? If he perceives it as his job, it's to make Freddie happy. Yeah. No, no, no. No, no. I was just. I, I. You know, there's sometimes when we do this that we, we. We talk about science fiction in general. Yeah, you know, we talk about all sorts of different things. I thought it would be interesting with uh, two accomplished writers who, uh, and again, I don't, I'm not sure you guys have such different styles, but in in these two stories, these two stories have a, both of them are very narrowly focused. Yes. Um, right. Uh, you know, uh, they're they're almost a little over the top. They're not like, uh, it's not only like two. A little? <laughs> Yeah. I'd say more than a little. It's not like two or it's not too like two Asimov stories that that have uh, all the five things yeah. they're supposed to have and everything. You know, they're they're both a little wonky, you know. And so I thought it was just interesting to see I'll how I'll you the would. stories. Hmm? Were we a little wonky or the stories a little wonky? The stories. Oh, okay. yeah. I'm yeah. more than a little wonky yeah. myself. But. So I just thought it was kind of, it'd be kind of interesting to look at technically how they came about in that way, you know. Yeah, and I. <sighs> I mean, you're usually a more realistic writer. Yeah, yeah. Stuff I've seen in yours. It's, it's, uh, you know, uh, I don't know. It's it, it to me. It's always been, like I say, science fiction is a very broad tent. But I, I think science fiction always tends to. Um, I guess there's a it, it, the writing style in. Uh, speculative fiction, fantasy, or science fiction, or whatever, it, it always tends to run towards the conventional because it's the themes or the ideas that are unconventional, and so the, the language always, uh, I think, tends to be but, but that's less where, that's where the that. new weird came from, in part, was basically another, another rebirth of the new wave. I mean, if you look yeah. at people like... China Mieville or Jeff Ryman or John Crowley or or um, Ursula Le Guin even yeah. they're not I wouldn't call their use of language conventional uh, I certainly wouldn't with China I certainly would with uh, Ursula Le Guin and and I certainly would with Crowley I think they uh, uh, um, I don't know it's just sort of the way I see it they, okay. they're not experimental writers in any kind of uh, it, it doesn't come off as, to me. I don't know what are other people. Depends on what I you mean by experimental. Yeah. Well, I mean, I mean different. I mean, yeah. I mean uh, writing that calls attention to itself. Writing that 
What are you? I think Crowley's little big, little big is heartbreaking at at the line level. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's actually a crappy book if you look at the plot, but the, but the, the I line don't level. Think I'd, well, I'd argue with you on that. Little, but that's big, okay. doesn't, little big doesn't end, it stops. You know, It, it never resolves. But, well, but it's beautiful all the way through. You don't care when you get there. Yeah, yeah. Okay, that's fair. What? Katrina? Does anybody have anything to add to this? I'm trying to make it should be a discussion. <laughs> yeah. Just melee. Laura. Yeah. What? I want to know what Bustle relaxes. <laughs> I don't remember. It also time. wiped out my memory. <laughs> no, I, you know, whatever one they give you when you've pulled a muscle in your back, I mean, it was something pretty. Industrial strength something. It, I mean. I have that problem when I was given something and imagined all kinds of stuff and I was just wondering. If you failed to write it down. I mean, if you, if you said, if you said the name, I might. I might remember it, but um, I, I should also add that I have like zero drug tolerance. You know, if I if I have two sips of beer, I really will fall over, which is why I don't drink. So um, even a mild muscle relaxant would have extreme effects on me. So, so Susan, are you trying to, my name's Leanne. Susan, are you trying to, um, to remove that governor, that, that sort of critic in your mind? Is that what the muscle relaxers did? Probably. Um, I take I take risks in my writing. Actually, I I mean I think that that's something I that I do do. I don't think. I mean I think in all of in all of my books and a lot of my stories I've done that. Not all of them, but many. Um, and I'm warier about social risks. I mean, I'll, you know, I'll do that. I'll do that too. But I, I think definitely that the, what the drugs did was to silence the inner critic. And we all, everyone who writes knows, you know, I, and I talk to my students about this, you know, and I say it's, it's the little head on your shoulder, which is sort of an image I get from Anne Lamott's Bird by Bird, right, that's going, every time you put down a sentence, you're like, that's stupid, that sounds dumb, you'll never be a writer, give up and be an accountant, you know, wham, um, and, but, but the little head is part of you, and you want to be nice to it, because it's part of you, and you don't want to beat it up, because so, uh, what I always tell my students is give the editor head a cookie and tell it here is a nice cookie and you are going to take a nap now and when you wake up you can edit my story and you'll be really good at it but i have to write it first that, that right it's why, all a matter sequence that is why i write the way i do to, I, I stay voice by writing so fast the voice doesn't catch up to me till i'm done yeah, <laughs> yeah. that's literally true that's exactly <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah I'm, I'm hypergraphic anybody who, who knows me very well knows that i mean like clinically hypergraphic. <laughs> yeah, and I, I mean, I get around it by convincing myself that, oh, I'm just playing, this isn't serious, you know, la, 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 and then, you know, I'm sort of doing an end run around it, and I tell my students, you know, that's, recovering the sense of writing as play is crucial, and I tell them if you have to write on butcher block paper, you know, with crayons while you're taking a bubble bath, you know, do that. If that's the way that the writing's going to come out, do whatever. It sounds like you actually use the denial method of writing. Nope, nope, I'm not writing, not me. Yeah. 
Yeah, to some extent. Or I'm not writing anything important. I'm not writing, you know, when I, when I wrote Flying in Place, which is probably still the best received and best known of my books, and, and that book has been used in court systems and therapy offices, and, you know, I'm really proud of that. Uh, and I, you know, I had been taking notes on this story, and I wound up with 95 pages of notes, and I, I kind of said, okay, well, you know, I've done too much work on this not to sell it, and if I'm going to sell it, it needs to have a plot. So, but I, you know, so so I kind of cobbled the thing together. But Ellen Kushner, um, who was, you know, who was a good friend of mine, and you know, we've sort of grown apart since. But she said, if you had known you were writing your first novel, you wouldn't have been able to do it. You would have psyched yourself out because mm-hmm. people had been nagging me. You know, I sold my first story to Asimov's in '85, and everybody was going, "Where's your first novel? Where's your first novel?" You know, and I was just like the pressure. Like, um, so I did an end run, in effect. And that book was originally supposed to be published as half of a tour double, right? Oh. And then it, it sort of, it was a publishing Cinderella story, and it got it got turned into a, like, standalone lead paperback, lead hardcover, which, you know, is still this miraculous thing that I look back on with wonder. Cool. Anybody have any uh, questions for our authors? Comments, criticisms, excoriations. Well, it's wonderful to be able to hear two different authors who come to it from different directions and hear how, you know, like advice from each side because it's, it, it's just lovely. Yeah, I made them do that. They, they don't really, that's all bullshit. They've been resisting but. all night. <laughs> I don't. I don't actually like to present myself in public. That's why I dress to blend in. <laughs> You're so shy. Yeah, it's it's, it's one of my biggest uh, problems, Cliff. Well, well, if you were looking for a specific question, of course, Jay, it's just completely different from what you've been talking about here. But it's about your the the, it, uh, the world of mainspring and escape. Mm-hmm. I mean, what started? Did, did you just did you just come up with this idea of a clockwork world and said now I'm going to develop from it, or where did you get started with that? I literally made it up one night. Um, I was at a workshop out on the Oregon coast. Chris uh, Rush and Dean Leslie Smith run an occasional workshop series. Mm-hmm. And they had uh, Ginger Buchanan from ACE out there talking about outlines and novels. And she said, it's like a week-long residential thing. A bunch of us were out there. And she said, all right, tomorrow morning, you're all bringing in two outlines for novels, and we're going to talk about them. We also, well, how do you write an outline? She says, that's how you're going to find out. <laughs> so... <laughs> Being the particular idiot that I am, I went to my room and wrote six different outlines, and I wrote each one in a different way, right? So one was like character descriptions with a little plot note at the end about how the characters interacted. And another one was just a kind of a straight synopsis, and another one was like a structural, I mean, one was literally an outline. Like I was just trying different ways, and I just, in the middle of that pile, tossed off this thing about the clockwork world. And the next day, Ginger said, if you write that, I'd probably buy it. Now... You'll notice that my publisher is Tor. <laughs> and for those of you who don't know Ginger Buchanan, she does not work at Tor. <laughs> what so happened was she turned it down. She turned it said? down. Oh, God. Do you but, hate that? Yeah, you know, like, Tor's, it's done very well at Tor. And, uh, Who's your editor at Tor? Beth Meacham. Okay. And in fact, I, on the way out to Omaha, I went to Omaha before I came here because I like to make San Francisco really special by spending time in Omaha first. <laughs> and, uh, I flew through Dallas-Fort Worth to get there, and the... The paperback's been out for two and a half months, and it was still on the shelf at the airport bookstore, wow. which Good. that is that's that is excellent. a vicious ecosystem. That's and I thought, excellent. okay, this car, this paperback has got some legs. Yeah, yeah. 24 hours if you're lucky. Yeah. And, yeah. I, and it was faced. <laughs> Ooh. 
which is cool, which is what comes of having kind of a nice cover. <laughs> but yeah, it just literally popped into my head one night. Now you could also flip that around and say that I've been thinking about clockwork stuff for a long time because I think it's cool. But it wasn't like I envisioned myself as a steampunk or a clockpunk writer. In fact, it didn't occur to me till after the book was published that I'd written steampunk uh, or clockpunk. Cool. Did you ever have a, an easy one like that that just came in one evening? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, the Necessary Beggar came to me in a flash in the shower on one April 16th. Now what's the, um, I haven't read this. So what's the story of The Necessary Beggar? The Necessary Beggar is about a family in exile from another dimension. Um, they're... The, one of the sons of the family has been... Um, convicted of a murder, and in this society, the punishment for murder is you're sent into exile in another dimension, and the whole family goes because families don't abandon each other. That's like a, a, one of their core values, and they wind up going through this, you know, interdimensional gate and winding up in a near future version of Reno, where I live. Um, where, among other things, there is a giant INS holding facility. Um, for you know, people from other countries who are seeking asylum, and and the, you know, my family winds up mixed in with these folks. Well, they speak no known language, can't and can't tell anyone where they're from, although they're demonstrably human through through medical tests and stuff. So they wind up in limbo, right? And finally, they're smuggled out by um, by a volunteer who manages to get them illegal papers, and they set about trying to make a life in. In America, um, you know, so it's it's you know a refugee immigrant story with magic in it. <laughs> so what's the difference in this other dimension? Um, the it's you know it's one of your sort of classic fantasy urban pre-industrial cultures, right? Um, the father of the family is a carpet merchant in you know in 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 the city, um, and the. The, cult, the the differences are sounds like ninety percent of the immigrants into the U.S. Well, well, yeah, you know, and and I sort of I I base the culture on some things I vaguely knew about Middle Eastern culture, but I'm not from the Middle East, and I didn't know enough about it to make it um, convincing. You know, I'm a white girl from New Jersey who only has the cultural authority to write about malls and Paramus, so I made up my own place because that's what fantasy writers can do, um, and. The the differences are largely there are different there are different values. I mean, this culture very much values um, certain kinds of generosity that American. I mean, they like to them, and this is actually something. A friend of mine who was in Turkey said that um, everybody loves beggars there because charity is one of the pillars of Islam, right? So if you give money to a beggar, you fulfill the religious obligation. So they love beggars when they see them, which is not how we feel here. Um, so, I mean, in this culture, there are, everybody has to spend a year on the streets as, as a mendicant, you know, which is true in some, in some Buddhist traditions also. Um, and that's to teach you about the generosity of the universe, because you can't, work. You just, you stand there with your hands out and people come and fill them. And that, you know, that tells you that 
you know, what comes to you doesn't come through any merit of your own. You know, it comes from the abundance of the universe. And so when they see homeless people on the streets, they're like, oh, wow, cool. You know, we can give them stuff. And everybody around them in the stage is like, blah, blah, blah. Um, so, it, you know, their, their values very much collide with those of you know, those are the place where they where they've wound up. Um, so that book came to me in a flash in the shower on April sixteenth. I I knew how long each chapter would be and who would be narrating it, um, and I finished it on June twenty eighth. Wow! And it won an Alex Award from the American Library Association and a Silver Pen Award from the Nevada Writers Hall of Fame, and was on various you know best of the year list from like library journal and stuff cool well now but when you know how long each chapter is going to be are we talking about word count or something sloppy like pages <laughs> sloppy pages but they're all in the same thing really so it boils down to the same thing yes no no damn it it would be you know are we leaving a character count here or word count <laughs> I, I, I don't believe her she's making that no I'm really not I'm really really, really not I, I want to ask you something you just said it caught my ear because it's an argument I get into reasonably often you talk about the cultural authority to write about things yeah which I, do, I don't actually buy this okay but I, I that was a particular you know it's a post 911 book and it was a particularly sensitive topic so but I mean I, I've been on panels I was on a panel at World Fantasy either last year or the year before where I there was a Scotsman a Canadian an Australian and me and we walked into a bar and um, <laughs> the, the panel was the term the or maybe before the panel, actually. And the, the term <laughs> cultural authority was not used, but that's what we were talking about. And right. the Canadian and the Australian both vehemently insisted that you could not write about First Nations people if you were white. And I said, that's bullshit. I'm not Jewish, but I write about Jewish people. I'm not female, but I write about female people. It's, it's a very difficult issue. And I mean, this is what Delia Sherman calls the cucumber theory of literature, okay? You can only write about cucumbers if you're a cucumber. Um, and, you know, on that level, we don't buy it. I mean, to me, fiction is the, the, the purpose and beauty of fiction is that it helps, it's, it's an exercise in imaginative empathy. Okay, it helps us imagine our way into other people's lives, and that's what good writers help people do. However, certain groups or certain individuals in certain groups perceive that as appropriation rather than as an honor. Um, and the question is who has the authority to tell them how to feel and what weight do, you know, do their feelings about this have? And it's sensitive enough that a lot of people have just said, okay, I'm not going to write about X, Y, Z, right? And, and now, my first novel, Flying in Place, is a first-person narrative about a 12-year-old child who is raped by her father. This did not happen to me. Um, that book is actually my father's favorite of anything I've written, and he gives copies to all of his friends, and I think it's his way of saying, I didn't really do this. But a lot of people assumed it turned out and when I was writing it, I was like, oh, man, nobody's going to buy this. I mean, I'm just, you know, no. And, and every, I had done it well enough that everybody thought, like, 
or a lot of people thought, oh, she must have gone through it because evidently I had captured a lot of things perfectly, which is why it's used in court systems and therapist offices, right? And one of the reviewers said, you know, Susan Pellwick does a wonderful job capturing her hideous childhood, and this was in print. And I wrote a letter and said, no, I'm a writer. I did research and then I made it up, okay? I read The Courage to Heal. I talked to friends to whom this had happened. I used whatever was applicable in my own experience, which was simply just growing up as a woman in a culture and a place where, like, if you walked alone at night, you know, people would say, oh, you're, no, you're inviting rape, dear. Um, and um, I, you know, this did not happen to me. And I, you know, I sent copies of the letter to my editor, my agent, and my father, uh, <laughs> as well as to the magazine. And, you know, it's, it's, I mean, this is proof that you can write about something you haven't lived, but it's also true that if you do that convincingly, people are, are going to assume things or, you know, you're going to get into... Well, that's one thing, but that's a yeah. different from what Jay said. Jay said he can't write about being a 12-year-old girl being raped because he's a guy. Uh, or that, or the people saying that it's not. It, that's the author. I can give a specific example. I, yeah. I, I, people. I've been taking the task for writing about minority experiences. Right now, as it happens, I grew up overseas as a member of a very small minority in the countries right. I lived in, which was white people, a very privileged right. minority, not an oppressed right. minority. Right. But I know perfectly well what it feels like to walk down the street and see absolutely no one who looks like you or right. speaks your language. Because I lived that way all my childhood. Now, I'm not pretending that's the experience of, say, right. being black in America or being an immigrant in America. But it's also not the experience, pardon me, of a white girl from France, right? Well, right. And, and, right. But exactly. people don't know that by looking at me. Right. You know? About you. I'm a white right. guy with an English last name who's got above average height and, and you know, pretty hair. That means I am the oppressor class, pretty much by definition. If I was 50 pounds lighter, I'd be the transparent case of the oppressor class. But I've, I mean, I've, you know, I just, a few months ago I was at WISCON, and um, I was labeled the oppressor class on a panel. Because, you know, it's all, it's all a function of context. Well, it's where you are and do you, you know, and who else you're talking that, that, to. That, by the way, is not a dialectic I personally buy into, but I do speak that language. <laughs> yeah, no, and I don't, I mean, I, I don't, I wish we could get beyond it, and some people are getting beyond it, and I also well, think we have to be sensitive to, sen I, I don't know how to solve yeah. this See, one. It's a, it, to me, it, it's a, it is a, it's a process, and it's, yeah. it's what Marx calls uh, things turn into their, ob it's, a, it's a good thing, that it, it comes out of a very real thing. Yeah, where, exactly. Uh, where white, uh, old white guys like me spoke for everybody, you know, right. except me, you know, and so that, that that was a huge problem in the world. Right. Now, at this, at this point, I don't think it's such a huge problem, but the echoes are still there. I have a friend who wrote a, uh, who's a, a Jewish guy from New York, who wrote a book about the Inuit. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and he tried to sell it in Canada, and he got back this nasty letter. This was ten years ago. This is, this is we don't, we don't uh, even read books like this. We're not even going to read them editorially. They're all pissed off and everything. But this, you have to understand that this is part. This is because Canada actually is dealing with this problem. They didn't yeah. wipe out all the Indians in Canada. You know that some of them are still alive. <laughs> And so yeah. there's a real there's a real give and take there, and sometimes it's it it's it gets stupid, sometimes it gets you know, but it, it's coming out of I think a, a good process, which doesn't make it any easier to be in the middle of it, you know, when when it gets uh, 
Well, you know, when and, you're an and, old white guy. And I'm, I, yeah. I'm a middle-aged white guy. You know, I'm not complaining about it. I understand the issue. It's interesting to me, though, that in our genre, which ought to be the genre that is absolutely the most suited to writing about the other, yeah. I mean, almost by definition, seems to be a genre. I don't hear romance writers having this argument, you know? Well, well you don't I, get so, too much shit about it in this genre either. And one, really, one reviewer praised me for writing about people of color and, you know, in The Necessary Beggar. Cause the, yeah. You know, and I, which, I, I mean, I, I had been a scare, scared I was going to take heat on that issue. And, and yeah. so far I had. But all I, I yeah, yeah, what I was just trying to say, it's not, it's not an abstract, it's not a literary question. It's a political question. Yeah. And it's, right. and yeah, it's right. in flux. And the power you dynamic know, so is a huge part of it. Yeah, you know, and so it's not not like something that what do we think this is right or do we think it's wrong it's it like when it comes up you know it can be this and that and yeah. the other but the process itself i think is something we in general agree with and that's why we get in, that's why we sort of uh we're, we're in sympathy with it so it you know it's not like anybody's going to say you know that the, this this comes out of a wrong-headed idea or something like well, that. Well, th the flip side too, which can be as damaging, is that First Nation people are expected to write about First Nation people and nothing else, right? Exactly. And I have, yeah. you know, which is just as limiting. I have a tremendously talented writing writing student who's um, Paiute Indian, and all of his stories and they're beautiful, and he's a gorgeous writer, and he's been very influenced by you know Sherman Alexie and people like that. But all of his stories are about you know, growing up Paiute on the reservation and drinking too much and, and you know, having a kid out of wedlock and playing basketball. Um, and, you know, people well, in the workshop started saying, you know, you could do other things. Like, that would be good, too. We'd like to read about that, too. And, and you know, and we... And one of my very in-your-face students actually said, why are Indians supposed to be inherently interesting? <laughs> <laughs> we all kind of looked at her like, whoa. And he, but, you know, and he's like, that's a really good question. Like, well, you know, I don't know. Yeah, Carol Inschwiller uh, was here last week with Pat Murphy, and she was saying, you know, because she's a woman writing at a certain point, yeah. it's it, she's considered a feminist writer. And Carol said, I couldn't be less interested in, you know. <laughs> I'm just not, you know, but every, but that's how I'm perceived. Terry, you know, some so people think I'm a religious writer, which is absolutely... Why? Well, Mainspring has been reviewed and criticized both as Christian apologia and as anti-Christian bigotry at the same time. Why do they think you're a religious writer? Is this, is this because I, I, yeah, really. But because I, 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 I touch a lot of religious themes in, oh. in my work, but well, I'm actually a raging secularist. I just find religion really interesting from yeah. the outside. Yeah. Yeah, but... You know, but I mean, if you were if you were Pope John, yeah, I, yeah, though that. Then but then I would have, as as uh, Susan said, cultural cultural authority. <laughs> Surely, have people have opinions on this if they don't, we're going to go home. Because uh, we probably should close now. The okay. muscle relaxants are still out there. He knocked over his beer bottle. <laughs> um, we now have to go home. That's the hey, thanks for coming, guys. Uh, what's our date, Jacob? Do we we ha do have a date, don't we? we do date, uh, August. All right, everybody's on our on our mailing list, right? I think it's like the twentieth. I don't know. I, I feel anyway. We should close it out. Come see us uh, again. Get on our mailing list. Watch for us on the blogs. Uh, we and uh, next month we think is maybe going to be Frank Robinson and Michael Blumline. Oh, uh, nothing to be determined. And and we we Who's he? <laughs> <laughs> or she. Not that there's anything wrong with it. <laughs> All right. Hey, thanks, guys. Thank, Thank you. you.
You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.